And so I'm excited to go through the last 11 verses here in Hebrews 11, because I think the, the author deals with something specifically that might, that might be in the back of our mind. And here's the idea. Here's the title today, and here's what's going on. Um, it's the longest title I've ever titled something probably. But when faith does and doesn't lead to what we expect. The title is basically a sermon in itself. When faith does and doesn't lead to what we expect. So sometimes we have faith and it, and it does what we thought it would do. And sometimes we have faith and we goes, I, I didn't expect that outcome. Like what happened, God? I had faith. Why didn't it lead to what I expected? And we see the author address that in the last few verses in Hebrews 11. So let's just read this as a whole. We'll pray, look at this more in depth. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. Verse 30 if you would read with me at home, grab your Bible, turn, turn off anything that might be distracting you. I'd, I'd love for you just to be present, be in the moment right now. Let's read Hebrews 11, verse 30. It says this. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of uh, weakness were made strong. They became valiant in battle and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women receive their dead raised to life again. Here's where the change happens in the middle of verse 35. Others were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. We're going to stop there. I want you to see here, this is basically Joshua through Zechariah. The book of Joshua, basically through the book of of Zechariah. This is the whole Old Testament after he gets out of really the, the first five books of the Bible. We saw by faith Abraham, by faith Noah, by faith Abel, by faith Moses. We, we saw this, and now we're going to look at Joshua through Zechariah. So there's a lot of Bible here, and we're not going to go over every character in depth, but we're going to look at these major themes. Some conquered armies by faith, and some were also tortured by faith. And so we want to look at this as a whole. What, what, what do you do when faith does and doesn't lead you to what you expect it would lead you to? So let's pray, and uh, we're going to invite the Lord to speak and move And again, I just want to ask you at home to maybe slow down, be present, be in the moment, um, try to put yourself in the text, ask God, increase your faith. Let's not be distracted right now. Uh, This is our our last of Hebrews 11, where I'm so thankful for this chapter, and I'm praying that God does something new and different in our lives. So again, slow down, be present. Let's pray right now. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we get to study your word. God, let it not be just a Bible study in my life. Let it not just be interesting points. 
God, for those who are hurting right now, who've shown faith or believed you, and what's happening in their life isn't reflecting that, or they feel discouraged. They feel like, why aren't their prayers being answered? Uh, For those who are seeing their prayers answered, God, I know there can be just a mixture of emotions happening. I, I ask that you would just speak and move, that this would be practical and yet personal, and God, it would lead to power, to change, to growth, that Jesus, um, we would truly learn from the men and women of faith who saw great things happen and some who saw painful things happen. And we ask God that you would just increase our faith, that you would speak, that you'd move. Lord, we just want to hear from you now in your wonderful name. Amen. You know, what do you do or how do you respond when things don't go the way you expect they would? Like, how do you deal with disappointment? I think all of us have had um, moments in our life where we expected God to show up or we expected something great to happen and, and it didn't go the way we thought. And so what do you do with that disappointment? We've all had that moment of that didn't go the way I was hoping it would go. Um, as many of you know, my wife and I were gone and we took our kids and we met some family on, on vacation and we got to be with my father-in-law, my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law. My, it's my wife's birthday while we were gone. So we made it like a birthday slash hiking trip. My wife loves hikes. I can do hikes, sort of, but I don't necessarily love them. And we went on hikes like every day, and I had this backpack carrier, and we'd carry my beautiful little baby girl who's just a little chunky, and I'm just a little bit out of shape. And so we're walking up, you know, like seven miles of, or three and a half miles one way, three and a half miles back, doing all these hikes, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, There's one hike, one of our last days hiking with my father-in-law. It's a short hike. I think it's our smallest hike. And it's supposed to take us to this rock formation where the rock is like super flat and smooth and like, it's almost like grainy and uh, beautiful colors. My wife showed me the picture. She's like, this is only like a half mile hike and you know, this is the end. I'm like, okay, let's do it. And so we were, we were walking, you know, halfway into it is more of a flat path. There was no cliffs, no, nothing like that. So we're like, oh, let's let the baby walk. You know, she's been carried this whole trip. Let's let the baby walk. And so we put our little one and a half year old on the ground and she's walking with us. And she's so enjoying it because she's being carried everywhere. And we're like, stay close, you know, and I'm walking and my wife's walking with her. And um, just within a matter of seconds, we hear her screaming. My wife grabs her and my baby just, she fell into a cactus which was like traumatizing for us. Her whole leg was just covered in needles. And so my wife picks her up. She's screaming bloody murder. I run over and her one little like chunky little baby leg, you just see all these needles. Some were very long, some were like medium, and some were like, I don't know, millimeter, like microscopic. I mean, there must have been like hundreds of them. So I'm pulling the needles out and she's crying. I'm getting the big ones out. I'm getting the, sm- the medium ones out. And the small ones I really couldn't get and it's just poking me. I still have a cactus in my thumbnail right now. And we're still, I'm trying to pull them out and she's freaking out. I, have to, I take off my shirt because it's poking me and I'm trying to use my shirt to pull the needles out. And you know, you're just watching your one and a half year old like not understanding what's happening. She's trying to touch the needles. My wife's restraining her. Me and my father-in-law grab as many needles as we can out of her leg. We're, we're basically done with what we can do with our fingers. So I have to run to like the information center and I get there and I'm like, they're like, see me out of breath. They're like, what's wrong? I'm like, my baby fell on a cactus. And just saying that sounds so weird. I'm like, my baby fell on a cactus. Do you have any, um, you know, tweezers, anything to help me get it out? So they give me a few tweezers. I run back to my wife and for the next several minutes, we're just plucking needles out of her. I mean, even later that day, we'd find small ones. We had to like pull them out. And it was one of those moments where as a parent, you're, it was not you know, like she was completely injured, but just seeing your, your child suffering and in pain is one of those moments where when we were done pulling out most of the needles, or almost all of them, except for some small ones we couldn't get, you know, we're walking back to the car. And we, we both had, my wife and I had that moment of just like our, t- our eyes are just filled with tears. You feel like terrible, your precious little baby girls in pain. And we're back in the car, we're driving away. 
and we didn't even do the hike, obviously. So the hike wasn't a big deal. We didn't, like our whole day changed, our whole mindset changed, and obviously it's not what we expected. And that, that pales in comparison to what some people have to walk through, where they have this expectation of, I thought life would be this way. I thought God would show up. I thought I'd be healed or my family member would be healed. I thought this job would work out. I thought that this relationship would work out. And what do you do when you have faith in God? Now, I think this even spiritually. You have expectations. Like, God, I trust you. God, you're going to show up. God, you're going to do something. But then it doesn't go the way you thought. Like, what do you do with that? I've talked to many people who said, Josiah, I have faith God's going to do this or God would do this and it didn't happen. And what do you do with that? And really, the last few verses of Hebrews 11 answers that and talks about that. And I want to get to that, and I want to look at this. So here's the three points we're going to look at today. Um, here's how the author kind of walks through Joshua to Zechariah, really. So we're going to look at when faith looks uh, ridiculous, the story of Joshua and Jericho, when faith looks ridiculous, when faith looks victorious, and when faith looks disappointing. So what do you do with that? When faith looks ridiculous, when faith looks victorious, and when faith looks disappointing. Let's look at the first story he, he introduces to us. All right, number one, when faith looks ridiculous. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. Again, let's read it. It says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. All right, when faith looks ridiculous. Uh, the author of Hebrews just finished talking about Moses and how Moses was the one who delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And now he transitions to really Joshua. And if you look at the story of Joshua, um, you really see, first of all, in Hebrews, he doesn't say by faith, Joshua. It's almost more he's referring to the people. By faith, the walls came down. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Joshua, Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. And I have like children's ministry songs in my mind about that. Um, but if you want to go back, you can read Joshua chapter 2 through 6. And really, it's an unbelievable story. Joshua uh, just led the nation of Israel over the Jordan, really into the land of Cana, into the promised land. Moses was not allowed or not able to enter in. Moses passed away. Joshua was the new leader. Joshua enters into the Jordan, the promised land. And their first real battle they face is Jericho. Jericho is an extremely well-fortified city. It's a strong city. It's a city, like the first battle is not the weakest city. The first battle is the strongest battle. And really their faith's being tested right away. And it's interesting, Joshua is told to walk around the city of Jericho for seven days, one time, but on the seventh day to walk around seven times. He's told to bring the Ark of the Covenant which just represents the presence of God and to bring people with, you know, the chauffeur, the like ram's horn, the little trumpet, just to walk around the city on the last day. You're going to walk seven times, blow the trumpets, shout, the walls fall down, you win. Now, that looks ridiculous. When you think about the story, Joshua, you could say, was a mighty general at different points. Joshua's not told, hey, go build ladders, scale the walls, dig tunnels, get underground. He's not given strategy. He's given this act that looks absolutely ridiculous. I mean, if you're in Jericho and you see people just marching around you for seven days, they've done nothing. This looks like hilarious. And here's the thing. Um, faith sometimes will look ridiculous. Faith might appear irrational. In reality, it's not less than irrational. It's not, it's not less than rational, but it's beyond rational. So meaning there are times you might sense the Lord doing something in your life that you go, this seems irrational. Like, I, you want me, God, to go talk to this person about you? You want me to pay for their lunch? 
You want me to invite them to church? You want me to share with my coworker who's a known atheist and very bold in that? You want me, to, and there might be times where you sense the Holy Spirit nudging you to do something where you go, that doesn't make sense. That's almost irrational. And yet, listen, just like Joshua, when you obey, that's when you see God show up in amazing ways. I don't want to overly spiritualize this, but there really is something about hearing God's word and just simply obeying it. There's something that this might look or appear foolish. In reality, it's the wisdom of God, which appears foolish to men. I mean, if you think about the story of Christianity, think about the cross. The cross appears foolish. When you look at the cross, you go, wait, God died? That's your story? God died and that's salvation for us all? When you think about the cross, it looks like to the world, it's like, that's, that's the best you got, Christians? You know, it almost appears foolish. Paul would actually write about this in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul said it this way. Listen, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudence. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The message of the cross at first glance might seem weak, it might seem foolish. It might seem like, wait a second, God just died for the sins of the world. It can't be that easy. And at first glance, it appears foolish. And God says, but I've made, I've, my wisdom is foolishness to the world. There, there's a side of this, Christians, where um, as we're talking about faith, I feel like the most, the most times in my life where I've had to step out in faith feel ridiculous. It seems impossible. It seems like, well, how is God going to do this? And practically, you, you have to discern the voice of God and just press into it. That we're not always told to understand, but to undertake what he said and to move forward. Like you won't always understand. There's gonna be things you sense God asking you to do, to give generously, to love someone who seems unlovable, to forgive someone who really, really hurt you. There's gonna be times where you're gonna discern the voice of God and it's gonna seem ridiculous. I could never forgive them. Do you know what they did? I could never give this way. Do you, know, do you know where I'm at in life? I could never, and you're gonna sense God moving you and, and just kind of saying, hey, I want you to take this step. I want you to do this. It might, it might seem ridiculous to the world. Walking around seven times, what a terrible battle strategy. But yet, this is how, I'm gonna, how we're gonna bring victory. This is how we're gonna change your world. This is how we're gonna change the world by something that might appear ridiculous to the world. Now, I wanna make this really clear, actually. Before Joshua even did this, think about this. Um, they're told to bring the Ark of the Covenant. They're told to bring that which represented the presence of God, saying, don't go into battle without the presence of God. Don't march around the city without my presence. Bring me into this. Let, the, let me be the epicenter. You're gonna walk around at the wall, and it's gonna be about me and my presence walking around. I'm with you. You know, think about it this way. In Joshua chapter five, I think one of the coolest, shortest stories, Joshua sees a man in the distance, in Joshua chapter five, and he sees it. He looks like a warrior. He's holding a sword. And he goes, hey, are you for us or against us? And the guy responds, I'm neither for you nor against you. And he finds out that he's the commander of the Lord's army. Now, side note, I really do believe personally, I don't believe this for all of these stories, but I believe this was what you would call a Christophany, a Christophany. This was Jesus's appearance in the Old Testament. You can read in Joshua chapter five and verse 14, because Joshua sees this man. We'll throw one of the verses up for you in this story. But in Joshua chapter five, it says, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he worshiped. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? 
In the Old Testament, if someone worshiped an angel, or even in the New Testament, they'd say, don't worship me, I'm just an angel. Joshua falls and worships and says, what does my Lord require? What do you, what do you want? And here's the, here's the idea. This was right before Joshua 6. This was right before they walked around the city of Jericho. Before they entered into Jericho where the walls fall down, Joshua's worshiping. Joshua's seen saying, uh, I'm on your side. It's not about God being on our side. We could ask, is God on my side? Is God for me? It's like, well, yeah, we know Romans 8. God is for you. Who can be against you? But at the same time, are you for God? Joshua's like, okay, I, I get it. And he's worshiping. And, and here's the idea. This incredible miracle of the walls falling down by faith started with worship. And I really do believe for walls to fall down, just speaking in a metaphorical way, a lot of times worship is the precursor. So meaning it's Paul and Silas in prison and they're being abused and they're being persecuted. And what happens? They're in prison, but they're singing. And it says they're worshiping to God and it says then their chains fall off. I will say that it seems as if worship frees so many people oftentimes, whether it's from addiction to sin, whether worship just sets you free from personal struggles, Maybe there's temptation in your life and worship when you bring in the presence of God, when you focus on Jesus, when you bring in him in the forefront of your mind, those other things seem to fade away. Think about this. Their, their mindset was, look at Jericho, look at the walls. We could never conquer this. And God's saying, don't focus on Jericho, focus on me, focus on worship. And I would say this, sometimes we are way too problem conscious than we are God conscious. Meaning right now in this world, we look and we go, God, the world's messed up. Like this is, this is screwed up. Do you see what's happening over here and here? And, and we can look at that. And here's the thing. Um, I would say, don't be so problem conscious. Be so much more God conscious. Like bring in the presence of God, bring in worship. Watch what the Lord does. Watch how he'll bring really freedom and healing and clarity. I'll say personally speaking, when there's been things in my life, like I've harbored bitterness or unforgiveness in my heart, or maybe there's just been a sin or temptation in me that just feels like it's winning. I'll say this, worship has been the thing where you, I just have felt release, I felt freedom, I've been singing, I've been praising privately, publicly, and you have like that presence where God comes over you and you just kind of like overwhelmed. You're like, God, I give in, I surrender to you, I'm done. I wanna, I wanna live for you completely or remove this, thank you. You just feel that weight lifted off from you. You know, even as a parent, parents, maybe you know what this is like when you feel like there's just chaos at home or your kids are fighting or bad attitudes. You know, my wife and I will just turn on worship and the mornings we're like, hey, we need to do things differently. We'll turn on worship. We'll feel the atmosphere change. We'll see the, the attitude change. There's just something about worship that leads to walls falling down. Here's the thing. Maybe you put walls up in your life. You don't let people in. You don't want people to know you. You don't want people to find out the real you. You build up walls. And I'll say, please invite worship. Start with worship. Watch God slowly just kind of remove and, and tear down those walls we have built up. Uh, Joshua starts with worship and he leads and marches the battle with worship with the Ark of the Covenant. And there's something about worship that just makes those walls fall down. It seems ridiculous. I get it. You're like, Josiah, you're saying the solution to maybe some of my problems is worship. Maybe. I'm sure it's more of a complex answer than that. But I say, have you started with worship? Have you entered into it with worship? He said, God, there's problems in my life. There's walls. There's things that seem undefeatable. I'd say worship. He, Joshua worship. He worshiped Jesus, I believe. He worships him. He says, what do you want from me, Lord? He obeys him. He follows him and the walls come down. See, faith oftentimes might look ridiculous, might feel ridiculous, but I'd say, don't try to understand it. Just move forward in it. Next, we see on the other end, Rahab, 
who is living in Jericho, who was in a sense an enemy, and now she's gonna become a traitor to her own people. And now it says this in verse 31. Let's look at Rahab. It says, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So it's really interesting. Rahab's thrown in here. Like one little verse about Rahab. Now, when you think about all of the Old Testament, all of the great men and women, and you think about even like Esther and Ruth, they, they seem to be hinted at later. But when you think specifically named, Rahab is one of them. Rahab, who was a prostitute. Rahab, who didn't have the best reputation. But Rahab, when you read the story of Joshua, showed incredible faith, who welcomed these spies in, protected them, kept them safe. She spoke about how she believes their God is the true God. Listen to this. It's Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. It says it this way. This is what Rahab said. She said, I know, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And the terror of you has fallen on us. And all the inhabitants of the land are, are faint of heart because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Do you hear this profession of faith? I've heard about your God. We've heard about what he's done for you. We've heard how he's dried up the Red Sea. We heard how he's protected you. And when you, we heard that you were here, all of our hearts fainted and melted. Your God is the God of heaven the God of heaven and earth. And you see this great profession of faith. I mean, she's convicted by the spirit. She confessed, she believed. And then later we see that she hid the spy. She, her faith and her belief in that true God led to her an action, led to a work that really kind of showed that her faith was genuine, was real. Actually, the book of James, Jesus's half-brother, James, would write about Rahab as well. He said this, he says, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? James says um, it was not just her profession, but it was also her works, meaning her works didn't save her, but it revealed to her that she had saving faith. If you've missed that in Hebrews 11, this has been a, a big theme. Faith doesn't just say, I believe intellectually. Faith presses into it. Faith has action attached to it. This is her act. She believes so much in their God that she's, I'm going to help you. I'll become a traitor to my own people to help the, the one true God and the people of God. She had genuine faith, and it led to her salvation. And, and this is an incredible story. I'm so thankful for people like Rahab. I'm thankful she's mentioned in the Hall of Faith. If you know anything about Rahab, by the way, she goes on to marry a guy named Salmon. Great name, I know. Uh, S-A-L-M-O-N, maybe they said it differently. Probably they did. But she goes on to marry this guy, Salmon. He's, he's known as the Prince of Judah. She becomes the mother of Boaz. Maybe you remember the story of Ruth and Boaz. Not only that, she becomes one of the great-great-grandparents of King David. Not only that, she becomes one of the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma of King Jesus. Rahab, the prostitute, is now married to the prince of Judah, gives birth to Boaz, another book, Book of Ruth, who ends up becoming one of the great-grandparents of Jesus. Is this not a story of God's redemption and God's grace and God's mercy? And here's the thing. You, you hear so many people talk about why maybe they can't believe in Jesus or why they can't change. Listen, she had a, a pretty um, sketchy past, a pretty sketchy present, but she heard it and something changed within her. And she goes, I, I, I'm, I, can't, I can't live this way anymore. I'm gonna do life differently. I'm gonna exercise faith now. Here's, here's what I'm getting at. Um, Rahab's past did not define her. Her faith did. Listen, your past, what you've done does not have to define you. Your faith defines you according to Hebrews. Either your faith defines you or your lack of faith. 
But here's the good news, man, that Rahab was not defined. It's not saying Rahab, and look at Hebrews 11, again, verse 31. It's not talking about her, her past sins. It's identifying, saying, here's the person we want to make sure we're speaking of the same person in the Old Testament. But it's not talking about her past sins. It's saying, look at her faith. Listen, your past sins and my past sins don't define us. Our faith in Jesus defines us. Or maybe your lack of faith defines you. But the Bible says this is where your identity stems from. Is it your faith? Your faith, your faith. By faith, Rahab. You know what's really interesting, side note about the story? They said, okay, Rahab, the walls are gonna come down, but you and your family, whoever's in your house is gonna be alive. How? They said, we wanna make sure we, we know it's you and we wanna make sure it's very clear. You're gonna have a scarlet cord hanging from your window. Now listen to this, this rest of the story in Joshua 2. It says it this way. Uh, Behold, when we come into the land, this, the spy speaking to her, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father and mother, your brothers, and all of your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Here's the idea. I love this. Um, throughout the Old Testament, and really leading into the New Testament, there is this idea of a scarlet thread, a red thread, a crimson thread, a, a, a scarlet cord. What, what do I mean by that? When God released the children of Israel from Egypt, before he did, he said, the firstborn's going to die, but you need to take blood and put it on your doorposts. And there's going to be this red above your house, protecting your house, this blood. The idea was you are now going to be spared from judgment and judgment is passed upon that lamb and not your firstborn. And then with her, there's this red cord that's leaving her house. And this, this, red, this idea of the scarlet thread, please stay with me. It's seen throughout really the whole Bible that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. That though our sins be like scarlet, God will make them whiter than snow. The idea is this, when you read the whole Bible, there's these different figures or types or things pointing to the blood of Jesus and saying, listen, you and your house will be saved if they're under this roof because of this scarlet cord, which will identify you with us. And they're saying either the blood's on you or the blood's on us. If you're not under this covering, the blood's on you. If you're under this covering, you're, the, you're safe. And here's what I want to get at. Her whole household ends up getting saved, essentially. Anyone who's under that roof, not only is her life redeemed, and not only is her life saved, but her family's life is saved. She didn't think, I can't go back and tell my family. They know I'm a prostitute. They know the things I've done. They know how I, I've been dirty. I've been disgusted. I've done some terrible things. No, she invites her family in and says, you too can be saved. And her salvation led to her family's salvation. And this, this is the whole point. God did not just save us so we could be saved, but that we could also get this message out and help save others. So we can say, hey, God has saved me. You too can be saved. But listen, if you're not under this covering of the blood, if you're not under this covering of the scarlet thread, the idea is that your blood's on your own head. Either Jesus paid for your sins or you pay for your sins. Either Jesus absorbed the wrath of God or you absorbed the wrath of God. And this is the idea we see with the scarlet thread, the scarlet cord. And so here, here's the idea. Um, sometimes you might hear God prompting you and it might feel or look ridiculous. And I'd say as you respond and obey in faith, you watch God show up like the children of Israel with Jericho, like Rahab.
It appeared ridiculous, and yet um, it was their salvation. The, the, the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. The message of the cross might seem foolish, but it's the power of God. Not only that, but here's what we see next. Number two, we're going to see when faith looks victorious. So then he just names like some story after story of this men and women who had great acts of faith. And he just kind of runs through it quickly, and it has inferences. So let's just read through this. It's verse 32. He says this, And what more shall I say? And you can tell he's kind of wrapping up this hall of faith. He says, For the time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, uh, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turning a uh, turn to fight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Let's stop there. He then walks into all these amazing stories where God just showed up in very powerful ways. Now, as I mentioned, uh, there's a lot of Bible here. I mean, basically, like I said, it's the rest of the book of Joshua to Judges to, you're going to see all the way to Zechariah, these different uh, comments he's making. He's saying, I, I can't even go through all of the Old Testament to show you all these stories of faith where God showed up in powerful ways. Um, just in case you want to see some of the names or you want to see some of the big picture, we'll throw this up for you really quick. But here's some examples of faith by action he showed. Uh, the conquered kingdoms, Joshua and David. Administer justice, David, Solomon. Obtain promises, David. Shut the mouths of lions, uh, you could say Samson. You could say Daniel. Uh, quenched an inferno, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we'll get that. Escaped the edge of the sword, whether it's Elijah or Jeremiah. They won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight, uh, to flight. Women received back their dead children. You see that with Elijah and Elisha, the women they ministered to. They suffered mocking and, and scourging. Jeremiah was stoned to death. Zechariah, sawn in half, is, is the story of Isaiah were put to death by the sword. Uh, you can read different prophets. Wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. It seems to be referring to this Maccabean period, which I'll speak about in a little bit. They wandered in deserts and caves and hiding. It, he basically says, look at all these men and women of faith. Some victorious in our eyes, some don't appear victorious, but they were. And he says, look at these stories. You know, there's something about stories. I mean, I really want us to hear this. There's something about hearing what other people have gone through whether they, it led to victory or it led to pain, and just saying, how do they react? How do they handle that? If you've ever seen someone suffering firsthand, you're going, but what, what do they, how do they respond? Like, what, what was it like? Did they have faith? Did they not? They had, they had great moments. Some of these men and women had great moments. They had low moments. David had different depressing moments you can read in the Psalms. He wasn't always acting victorious or pretending he was victorious. He had some very, very low moments at times. And you can read these different stories. And guys, we love this. We love stories. Let me say it this way. Um, contrary to popular belief, the Bible is not a bunch of random stories that are just like nonsense. The Bible is filled with a bunch of different stories that are really telling one story. That we are weak. We are broken. Apart from God, we are nothing. We have a really faithful God. God is looking to show favor on people who will show faith according to the scriptures. Like, think about these stories. All these stories show us God is incredibly faithful. Even when you're faithless, God is incredibly faithful. At times they had great faith, at times they didn't. God was faithful, and God might be faithful in ways we don't expect. Some of them didn't have the outcome maybe they wanted. But here's what I'm trying to get at. Um, the Bible, though it's many, many stories, it's storing one story of redemption. It's storing, showing one story of the cross. It's showing one story of, listen, apart from God, you are nothing, but there's this promised one, the Savior will come, who will redeem and save. And it's constantly pointing to one big story, and that's the story of the cross. 
And, and here's what I'm getting at. You know, we love these stories of, of victory. Like, we love it. I love hearing about someone's business that's going under. They had faith, they trusted God, they used their, their money, their time, their resources to honor God, and their business comes back to life. We love that. We love the stories of the people who are healed. We love the stories of people who go, wait, that was a medical anomaly. We cannot explain that. You know, I had the privilege of meeting this young woman who had a brain tumor, was suffering tremendously. She went to the doctor, had several x-rays. She's about to get surgery. The day before her surgery, they took another x-ray. And long story short, the doctor goes, we can't find the brain tumor. They took another x-ray. There, there's, no, there's no sign of your brain tumor. And they've looked at her previous x-rays and they're going, that is not a medical error. Like you had a brain tumor. And they've had to sit her down and say, listen, we don't know what, what's happened. You had a brain tumor. It's not here. It's not showing up. You don't have symptoms of a brain tumor anymore. Um, and they just basically mocked up there and said, this is a medical anomaly. We don't know what to say about this. And she's like, well, I know my, my grandma's been praying and fasting for me. I've been praying and fasting and I, I know this brain tumor has been healed. Listen, we've met people like that. We know people like that. It's, it's beautiful. It's incredible. What about the stories where God doesn't heal the brain tumor? I had to uh, the privilege of sitting down with a 12-year-old kid who had a brain tumor, and he passed away right after Christmas one year. And his family was gathered around him and praying for healing, praying for a miracle. And we go, she was spared, she was healed, he wasn't. What's that? How does that make sense? You know, and this is really where the author gets at in, in verse 35. That, and we're going to look at this a little bit more. Because what do you do with that? Why do some seem to show faith and it goes the way they expected? Some seem to show faith and doesn't go the way they expected. Why does there seem to be different outcomes? Why does God intervene for some and doesn't intervene for others? And what does this look like? How does this work? And we will get to that. We'll look at that more in number three. But I, I do want to clarify something. Um, you know, there's a wonderful woman named Joni Erickson Tata. Maybe you've heard of her. She's a Christian author, painter, very creative writer. Uh, at 17 years old, she had a diving accident. She broke her neck. She became a quadriplegic. I mean, she had, you can read about her story, her biography, great depression, angry at God, bitter at God. She had high moments, low moments. When she first broke her neck, her friends came to her and said, listen, Joni, if you have enough faith, God can heal you. And if you have enough faith, God will heal you. And if you don't have faith, because if, you, if you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. And she said, like, luckily, I didn't believe that lie. Luckily, I realized that my concept of faith is so much bigger than if I just have enough of it, God will have to do what I have, expect him to do. And she writes about how she realized God is not her genie. God's not there to say, well, God, I, I, I rubbed the magic lamp and I, I asked for this and I prayed a bunch of times. Come on, you owe me. And she writes about her faith journey, how she had to learn to accept it, how she had learned how to embrace it. And by faith, by faith, listen, by faith, she embraced her suffering. I think that it takes just as much faith to embrace your suffering than to be healed from your suffering. Please hear that. Yes, by faith, people were healed. Yes, by faith, miracles happened. But at times, it takes just as much by faith. By faith, they walked out their suffering. I think you could also define that's incredible faith. You know, here's what Joni wrote. She would say it this way. She said, sometimes God allows what we hate, what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God hates sin. God hates the ramifications of sin. God hates suffering. She goes, sometimes God allows this to accomplish what he loves. He's produced peace in me, life in me, joy in me, character in me. He's removed this hunger for materialism. He's removed this hunger for the here and now and given me a bigger mindset for eternity. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. 
It's never really an easy answer or one answer fits all. But what a beautiful mindset to take on. Again, we love the stories of victory. We love the stories where God showed up. I love they talked about how through faith the fire was quenched. Obviously referring to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and when you think of that, that story, it's an incredible story. I want to read the interaction really quick between the, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and King Nebuchadnezzar. Because I want you to, if you don't know the story, you're a little bit familiar with the story, just listen to what, what happened, what took place here. It's Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. These men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. If you guys remember, uh, Nebuchadnezzar set this golden image, said when the music plays, everyone bows down and worships. Well, they didn't bow down and worship. And so Nebuchadnezzar liked these guys. He goes, listen, I'm gonna give you another chance. You, you need to bow down and worship when the music plays. And they're like, we're not going to do that. There's one true God, one true king. We're not going to worship your God. Now, here's what's interesting to me. They said, you throw us in the fire, he will deliver us. Did you catch that? He will deliver us from your hand. Remember how we said this at the very beginning of the series? Faith is not saying God can, it's knowing he will. That's their mindset. He will. And I love this little clause they attach though. They go, even if, even if not, let it be known. There, it's really interesting, this dynamic of he will. That's a, not he might, not he probably. It says he will. They spoke with confidence and said, even if not. And I, I think that, what a good example of faith. When you say God will do this, even if not, he's still good. He's still king. We still won't worship. You know, I do believe this mindset of faith we're praying for is this Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego type of faith. We say, God will do this. Even if not, it doesn't matter. He's still good. He's still God. There's probably a reason why he didn't deliver us or will deliver us or wouldn't. There's probably, they understand there's a bigger thing happening that they can see in the here and now. God did deliver them, if you know the story. But just even having that mindset of he will, even if not, I'm at peace. God will do this. I think Christians, we really struggle with that. We really struggle with speaking just boldly. I think that personally, it's hard for me to go, God can do that. God might do that. That's easy. It's hard for me to say, God will, even if not. It doesn't change a thing. He's still good. He's still God. He's still king. Listen, we love verse 32 through 35, the beginning part. We love the stories of victory. But then he changes his tone. He goes, others, and we're going to look at when faith looks disappointing. So let's, now let's talk about this. Verse 35, uh, so remember the first part. He says, women receive their dead back to life. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy." They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should uh, not be made perfect apart from us. Okay, what is this? Let's talk about this. Uh, what happens when faith looks disappointing? What happens when faith, when things don't go the way you want? You know, think about how he worded this, by the way. Some women receive their dead children back to life. What a powerful thing. That happened with Elijah and Elisha. They received their dead children back to life. He said, others, others were tortured. Others were murdered. Others were sawn in half. 
Others are brutally, brutally beaten. And he goes into this. You know, think about this in this way. Um, for example, Peter would be in that first part of victory. Uh, you think about John the Baptist would be in the second part. For example, Peter is in chains and in prison, and he's released. By faith, you could say Peter's released. John the Baptist is in prison. He sends his messengers to Jesus. Are you the Christ, or do we look for another? I mean, you think about John the Baptist in prison. What happens? He's, he's beheaded. His story ends right there. Did Peter have more faith than John the Baptist? Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest prophet to ever live. So I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't say that. I would say, look at Peter, look at John the Baptist. Why did one have one and not the other? What about King David and his best friend, Jonathan? I mean, David was a poor shepherd boy, promised to be king. He ends up defeating Goliath, being loved by many. He ends up being hated by King Saul. He ends up being on the run, hiding, having really depressive moments, as you can read in the Psalms, really low moments, only to be restored, only to become the king, only to rule and reign, only to be super victorious. And yet his best friend, Jonathan, who's the son of King Saul, Jonathan, who was a good person, loyal to David, loyal to God, died far away from his home. His life was over in battle. David seemed victorious, Jonathan not so much. Why does there seem to be both men and women on both sides who love God, fear God, honor God, some were rescued, some were not? And, and here's what I want to get at. There's this phrase, I hope you caught it. It says in verse 35, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Please notice this. Others, others are tortured. Others died, but that they might obtain a better resurrection. So stick with me really quick. Don't miss this, okay? Uh, the author just said, look at women received their dead children back to life. And then he says, and others, now here's what that seems to imply. Most scholars, most people who study the text say, he's talking about a specific story in his mind, but where do we have others whose kids died? Now, there's something called the intertestimonial te testimony period. So you think about this, between the Old Testament and New Testament, we call it the 400 years of silence. The last book of the Bible written is Malachi, and then it picks up again really with John the Baptist. And you go, what happened in these 400 years? Well, uh, you can read the book of First and Second Maccabees, uh, you can read them more as historical books, not authoritative Bible books, but you can just read them as like history. Uh, you can understand that Jewish history with Judah, Maccabeus, you can under like, look at that as a whole. It's really interesting. Stay with me. If you read 2 Maccabees chapter 7, there is this woman who has seven sons. And this woman who has seven sons is standing before Antichius Epiphanes. He's the king of Syria, wicked guy evil guy. History tells us Antichius Epiphanes would go in the Jewish temple. He would just smother pig's blood all over it. He sacrificed pigs, which is not kosher, um, which is not holy. He sacrificed pigs in the temple. He, was a, he hated the Jews. He found creative ways to torture and kill the Jews. And if you read 2 Maccabees 7, uh, it's basically a story of one by one, these sons dying. One by one, these sons saying, we're not going to turn from the law. We're not going to turn from the ways of Moses. We're not going to turn from God's word. We're not going to worship you. We're not going to turn our back on this. And here's what I want you to see. They all spoke about a resurrection. So listen to this. It's 2 Maccabees 7. And this is just, we're looking at this as history because some women received their dead sons, dead children back to life. Others didn't. Uh, here's some of the verses. One of the sons said with his dying breath, verse 9, he cried out to the king, you butcher, you may kill us, but the king of the universe will raise us from the dead and give us eternal life because we have obeyed his law. Another son, verse 11, said, His laws mean more to me than my hands, because they cut off his hands. And I know God will give them back to me again. Speaking of resurrection, verse 14, one of the, another son said, I'm glad to die at your hands because we have the assurance that God will raise us from death, but there will be no resurrection to you, to life for you, Antichius. 
Then here's the mother speaking. I do not know how, and she's talking to her sons, I do not know how your life began in my womb, she would say. I was not the one who gave you life and breath and put together each part of your body. It was God who did it. God who created the universe, the human race, and all that exists. He is merciful, and he will give you back life and breath again because you love his laws more than you love yourself. Here's what I'm getting at. These sons, these Jewish sons who believe in the one true God, they're standing before Antiochus Epiphanes, and one by one, they're watching their brothers being slaughtered in terrible ways. I mean, it's like very horrific. You can read how they, they're very detailed in how these sons died. And the mother's encouraging their sons, saying, listen, you die, you will, you will live again. You die, you will rise again. And these sons even have that belief. All of them reference this resurrection. They're going, we're going to rise again. Cut off my hands, cut off my feet. I'm going to walk again. I'm going I'm to touch things again. I'm going to be alive again. Here's the idea. There was a better resurrection promised. Please listen. The widow's son who came back to life with Elijah, he was just going to die again later. Jairus' daughter, who Jesus brought back to life, would just die again later. Lazarus, who Jesus brought back to life from the grave. Lazarus, who rose again, would just die again later. Here's the thing. There are definitely times and moments God miraculously intervenes and heals, and we love those moments. But we've got to understand, all of those miraculous moments still led to death. They were resurrected, and really they were resuscitated, you could say, because they would just die again. The Bible speaks of a better resurrection. The Bible speaks of a true resurrection day, where you'll resurrect again, not to die again, but to live forevermore. You see, these people by faith were tortured. Uh, there seems to be references to the Colosseum. They're covered in goat skins, animal skins. Think about this. Christians in the early church, in this day when he's writing, they would literally sew Christians into dan dead animal skins and feed them to lions. There are Christians who are one by one or in groups as well, being fed to just being fed and tortured and mutilated in the Colosseum. And he's saying, he's answering this question of have great faith, God will show up. And there's times where you go, but why is it leading to death? Why was Isaiah, Isaiah sawn in half? Why was Zechariah stoned to death? And he brings up these people. He says, listen, because there's a better resurrection. Even if in those moments where God intervenes, there's still this longing in our heart where we know that's not the end. We know there's still more. People were resurrected just to die again. But guess what? In Christ, you and I will rise again to never die again that the Bible speaks of a final resurrection that'll take place, that we who are dead and alive shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, that there will be a day where we will meet the Lord, new resurrected bodies to never die again, that there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Listen again to this phrase, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Keep this in mind, though you're praying for a miracle, there will be that miracle that will be better than any other resurrection we can experience. You know, we've all suffered loss. If you've had a family member, a friend, a parent, a child die or pass away, it's incredibly painful. And it's one of those things where you know in your heart, you go, this can't be it. We know there's something after this. We know there's something more to this, and we do. We do. There's a better resurrection. I, I want us to get this. How could Jews, Jews, in, in Jesus' day, how do they end up believing Jesus to be God? How could Jews who do not believe, they still, to this day, they don't believe Jesus is God, but how did so many Jews early on believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as God incarnate, as God in the flesh. You know what happened? Many of these Jews saw the resurrected Jesus. They didn't understand that the resurrection, they thought it was one day final future, which it is. But they didn't understand that one man in the middle of history could rise again and to never die again. 
For them, the resurrection of Jesus so changed the worldview. I mean, in their mind, Jews could never believe in Jesus, but he rose again, and many Jews did. And it changed Jewish history, it changed the church, it changed the early church. My point being, for this many Jews to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the resurrection had to be real. The resurrection had to happen. There, there's this great change. Now they're being fed to lions in the Colosseum. But he said, listen, Jesus died and rose again. We too will die and rise again. Though you cut off my hands, my feet, though, though whatever you do, it does not matter because I'll have a new life again. See, here, again, the idea is this. If you have this mindset, you can face anything. See, I don't want to lie or, or even for a moment say, listen, if you just have enough faith, God will always intervene and always show up. That's not the case. We see that with Isaiah, Zechariah, Christians in the Colosseum, Christians today. We see that with so many. And, and God might not intervene the way you want, but there is a better, better resurrection to come. There's a day to come where God will make all things new. And, and I love how verse 39 and 40 say it. Let's just read verse 39 again. He says really quick, all these having taken a good testimony through faith, they did not receive the promise. God, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. God, God, he says, provided something better. What was that better thing? It was the resurrection of Jesus. The better thing was the cross. The better thing was, listen, all these amazing stories in the Old Testament, all these amazing kingdoms being defeated and kids coming back to life and God intervening, there's something better. And that better was the resurrection of Jesus because that is that, that moment they were looking forward to where saying death will not have the final say. Death will not have the final word. Though we die, we shall live. If you believe in Jesus, though you die, you shall live. Death is that thing that haunts all of us. Death is that unavoidable thing. Death is the thing we try to like hide in, in, in you know, uh, cemeteries and keep out of sight, out of sight, out of mind. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to be around it. We do our really best to pretend that we're going to live forever. And death is one of those things that gets everyone. But if you believe in Jesus, the idea is though you die, you will live. That Jesus said, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, hell, where's your sting? That death does not have the last word. That hell does not have the last word. That our body does not just perish to die and rot forever, that Jesus will resurrect our bodies, 1 Thessalonians 4. That we shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That there shall be this new body, that when we see him, we'll be like him, 1 John says. That will be us, but a better version of us. There's just something beautiful about this resurrection story, because again, here's the idea. We all want to have amazing faith where God shows up, and maybe he will, and that's what we do call a miracle. Miracles are, are, are miracles because they're not common. It's not going to be very common. But when, you hap when that happens, praise God for that. It's a beautiful thing. But guess what? For, for the majority that doesn't, there's still this better resurrection. There's still this promise that, you know what? You're still saved by grace through faith. You'll still have eternal life. That though our bodies perish, God renews our inward man. And if, if you're in that place right now where you're praying for a miracle, I wouldn't say, uh, keep praying. Keep, keep asking. You have not because you ask not. Keep asking, keep believing, keep praying. But also like, Dan, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God will, even if not. Because here's the point. We have a better resurrection. It's a better, it says a better resurrection. You and I have something far better for us. That was the death and resurrection of Jesus and the promise of our future resurrection. I'll say, do not lose hope. Do not lose sight. Listen, this is Communion Sunday where I think it fits so well because know what communion reminds us of? Please listen. Communion reminds us of this fact that Jesus too suffered. It's not that, listen, it's not that Jesus was immune from suffering. I'm so thankful we have a God who knows what it's like to suffer. 
God's not in heaven going, well, if you just had more faith, if you just had more faith, you'd be safe from the suffering. Paul even said, there's this thorn in my flesh. I prayed three times and God did not remove it. Did Paul lack faith? No. It's not the issue. God is saying, you know what? Suffering, there's a fellowship in suffering. There's a community in suffering. There's a suffering that reminds us of our vulnerability, of how fragile we are, of how broken we are, of how strong God is, of how good God is, of how God, again, is not immune to suffering. We have the only worldview on planet earth where we say God suffered. We have the only worldview that says God entered into humanity, God took on human flesh, and he suffered with us. And so if God's not immune from suffering, don't assume that you and I will be. There's a fellowship of suffering that comes, that comes in life when you go, wow, I can relate to Jesus now in a way I never could have related to him because of suffering. And that's what communion reminds us of. Communion is a way for us to say, wow, thank you, God, that you suffered. Thank you that you, your body was broken. Thank you that your blood was shed for my forgiveness. And we, we take and we eat to remember that Jesus' body was broken so we could have a new body one day. We, we take and drink to say, Jesus' blood was shed so I could have forgiveness of sins, the scarlet thread. That message throughout the whole Bible. What can, wash away the, 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 what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away anyone's sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Whether that's Old Testament, New Testament, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And we, we take and we drink to symbolize and to remember the fact that Jesus' blood was shed for our forgiveness. So listen, I know that communion for me, for many of us, it can just be this routine thing. I would say take a moment, stop, pray, thank him. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, receive communion, and I'm gonna ask that you two right now prepare communion, that you have it ready. I'm gonna pray briefly. Thank you, Silver. Um, that as you approach this, this is something where you say, Jesus, your body was broken so that my body could be whole. Your blood was shed so I could be forgiven. And this is a time to thank God, to celebrate. This is not a time necessarily just to, to wallow in your sins, but to know that your sins have been paid for that though our sins were like scarlet, God will make them whiter than snow. Though we have a past like Rahab, she's not defined by her past, she's defined by her faith. And we too say, Jesus, our faith is in you, our trust is in you. So listen, right now, um, why don't you just get the communion ready? I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna be quiet, and I'm gonna ask that when you are ready, you pray as well, thank God, receive it with just a joyful heart and spirit, and then uh, just take and eat and drink when you're ready. And I'll have one more prayer. So let me just pray over this right now, pray for communion and just you guys at home. Father, we thank you so much for your body that was broken. We thank you for your blood that was shed. God, there's no way we could ever approach you on our own righteousness or on our own good works. We approach you based off the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. We approach you, God, because you paved the way. You came to us. God, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you. Lord, we thank you for the, the stories that we read of people who showed faith some victorious by our definitions and some maybe not by our definition, but they were still victorious. There's a better resurrection in store. Jesus, we thank you. We ask that you just meet us right now, meet everyone where they're at in their homes. God, that we just truly let this be communion where we commune with you, where we can meet with you. God, meet with us right now. We invite you here. We thank you. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. If you would just right now at home, just pray privately and when you're ready, take and eat and drink.